I mean, I don't hope, but if you know nothing about this story, that would be awesome. Or if you have forgotten about what this story is about, that would also be awesome. Um, it's one of my favorites, and uh, it's crazy and weird, but good. Now, I'm going to start by kind of uh, addressing the subject of security. Now, if you ask psychologists, you ask, ask people, um, what do human beings need to flourish? Often, uh, the answer is significance and security, maybe purpose, maybe community, uh, but security is always on the top of the list, and that is just lack of fear about certain things. So if you think about the different areas of your life, uh, consider how this might be true. So at your job, for example, you need to be able to um, take risks. You need to be able to do what you think is right. So I was a teacher, a public school teacher, and one of, the, one of the benefits, ended up being a benefit, is that it's incredibly difficult to fire a public school teacher, as you may know. Once you, after the first couple of years, you get your standard license, and then it's like you've just got to do something absolutely insane, crazy, to get fired because it's just very well unionized and very well protected by the government. Now, I found, that's not necessarily a good thing all the time, I found that was nice for me, mainly because... The way I taught was kind of counter to the philosophy of public education, and I felt free in my classroom to do whatever I wanted, to do whatever I thought was best for my students, which I would not have felt free to do without that security, without knowing that I wasn't, that they couldn't, they couldn't get me for this, so to speak. So at work, if you're afraid you're going to get fired at any second for any misstep, you're going to work out of fear. You're not going to take risks. Uh, you're not going to do creative things in your relationships, in your friendships. If you feel like your friends like you because you act a certain way, and as soon as you stop acting that way, they're going to ditch you and find other friends, you're just going to be acting out of fear. You're not going to be yourself. Okay? You're not going to feel comfortable to express yourself. In your marriage, if you feel like your spouse only loves you for fill-in-the-blank, then you're going to act out of fear because once whatever's in that blank leaves... They might not love you anymore, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work as an environment for nourishing. For flourishing, rather. Sorry. Okay, the idea is you need security to be able to flourish. In the case of our Christian lives, we would argue you need security in order to feel free. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? But you need to know that God doesn't love you for any particular reason. This is unconditional love, right? There's no condition attached to it. He doesn't love you because you serve him or because you go to church or because of anything. He just loves you because he loves you. That's it. That's it, okay? And that security is what enables us to, to flourish as people. So that's kind of the conceptual backdrop of what we're talking about. In Numbers 22 through 24, which are the three chapters we're going to look at, you'll have to be ready to um, scan through, jump, jump from verse to verse. Um, we won't read all the verses, but we're going to go through. We're going to go through the entire account, and we're going to see. We're going to see both sides of this security issue. We're going to see a character who is absolutely terrified the entire time. 
the farthest thing from security you could possibly be and what it does to him. And then we're going to see Israel, God's people, who are absolutely secure. Okay, and we'll see them both in contrast. The idea being for us, if you've placed your faith in Christ, he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, you believe that, you've entrusted your life to him, then you belong to God, period. Okay, you're secure, in other words. Okay, and we'll talk about that more as we go. Now, in Numbers 20, 22 through 24, the historical account of Balak and Balaam. It's unusual. The interesting thing about it is that for, for being three chapters in a book about Israel's history, there is no Israelite in any of these chapters. All three chapters deal with events and interactions between non-Israelites. Okay, which begs the question why it would be here. Why would... God, Moses, take the time to insert three chapters in which we learn nothing new about Israel. It doesn't tell us anything about what's happening with Israel. Okay? I think the reason is to kind of highlight this aspect of security. So we're going to start by walking through the passage from the perspective of Balak, this king. We're going to see that he's living a life of insecurity, absolute fear, and then we're going to shift perspectives to... Um, look at it from Israel's perspective or the way they're living. So chapter 22 opens with the Israelites camping in Moab. Look with, look with me at uh, the first verse. We'll start reading. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde, they're talking about the Israelites, this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. I'm not sure about that analogy, but... As the ox licks up the grass of the field, and Balak, the son of Zippor, was the king of Moab, at that time. So, our scene is set. After 40 years of wandering, Israel is finally standing in front of the Jordan, ready to go into the land, okay? After, a 40, year, after 40 years of kind of this cycle of God provides, Israel complains, God judges, Israel repents, God provides, over and over and over they go. It's a rough history, right? But they've finally made it, and they're about to go into the promised land. And as they're kind of getting to the point where they were, they had encountered a couple of different people groups. And it wasn't the plan that they would fight and destroy these people groups. God said, go through, just ask them if you can pass through on your way to the promised land. They do. The people say no. God fights for them. He defeats these kings. Now, Moab has heard about those battles that happened recently and heard that it was fairly one-sided right? Israel wiped out these people groups sitting right next to Moab. So now Moab is sitting here looking down in the valley at the thousands and thousands, some would argue millions of Israelites, and they're thinking, we're next, right? These people wiped out our friends, and now they're coming for us. The king is terrified, okay? He's absolutely terrified. He refers to them as a horde who would likely be able to crush his own army. So in other words, Balak, not very secure, not living a life of security 
not flourishing. So what does he do? Look at verses 5 and 6, chapter 22, Balak's plan. So Balak sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they covered the surface of the land, and they're living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So we'll stop there. Balak accepts the fact that no military strategy is going to do him any good. Okay, in other words, maybe he went to his military strategist and said, let's come up with a plan to fight these people. And it's clear the conclusion out of that meeting was, there's nothing we could possibly do to win. We're wasting our time. So Balak kind of makes a last-ditch effort, okay? If we can't beat them with earthly military means, maybe if we go find this, this dude that we've heard of who's kind of magical and does voodoo and curses people and blesses people, maybe if we get him on our side and we get him to curse Israel, then we'll be able to defeat him. And so he sends for Balaam. Balaam is the name of this guy. It appears he is internationally renowned for his blessing and his cursing. Okay? If Numbers 22 through 24 were all we had about Balaam, it doesn't really make him look all that negative of a dude, okay? Besides the fact that he's doing weird stuff, you'll see as we go through, he recognizes the God of Israel as a God. But if we look at other passages of Scripture, Balaam is mentioned. So, for example, in 2 Peter 2, uh, Peter says Balaam, quote, loved, loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude says, uh, Jude tells us as readers in the New Testament not to follow, quote, the errors of Balaam. And then even if you keep on reading on in Israelites' history, Balaam conspires against them. It's clear he's not, a, he's not a nice guy, okay? So with that in mind, we see Balak call Balaam, this fear-driven attempt at self-preservation. And you, we, kind of, we kind of start to see Balak is unraveling, in other words. Okay, as a leader, as a leader of Moab, he's unraveling. Kind of like um, famous dictators. If you know anything about Stalin in his later years, Hitler in his later years, right? Defeat begins to look imminent, and these guys just unravel. The paranoia, the fear that their empire will be destroyed. I mean, Hitler especially, right? I mean, by the end, his commanders are ignoring his orders. He's hunkered down in a bunker saying crazy stuff, saying we're still going to win, and he's just losing his mind, right? He's becoming unraveled because of fear, okay? He fears he's going to lose. So this is what's happening to Balak. He sends messengers to Balaam. First, Balaam says no, okay? Balak says, will you come curse these people? Balaam, their names are too doggone similar. Uh, Balaam ends in an M, and he's like a magician guy. That's how I try to remember it, okay? I'm sure I will mix up their names, though, if I haven't already. So, Balak sends for Balaam. Balaam first says no, can't do it. Balak sends, Balak asks again with a bit more money, okay? Balaam says, you know, I've thought it through, and this will be an okay thing. So, skip to the end, skip to the end of chapter 22, verse 36. 
When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he agreed to come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. So in other words, Balak is so anxious to meet this guy and to get him to curse Israel that he goes to the other end. It's like you hear someone's coming to Iowa from California and you don't wait for him to get here. You drive all the way to the west side of Iowa just so you can meet him right as they enter, okay? Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? He's wanting to know why I didn't come faster. So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. So Balak's little freakout session ends, and Balaam tells him something strange, which is that he can only say what God gives him to say. Very strange for a guy obsessed with money and who no doubt just wants to make a buck here, okay? We'll talk about why he says that in a bit. What happens next is Balak takes Balaam to a high spot from which he can see part of the Israelite camp. They build seven altars. They sacrifice animals. This is in no way biblical, right? They're not following the Levitical process or anything. This is probably just what Balaam did, right? One of his processes to please the gods or whatever. So they go, they do this. Uh, look at verses 7 through 10, chapter 23 now. Chapter 23, verses 7 through 10. This is the message Balaam gives to Balak after he goes and seeks, uh, seeks a curse from God. So, Balaam says, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. So Balak is not getting the kind of message he was hoping to get from his high-end diviner. Okay, The guy can't even curse Israel. It's the one thing Balak asked him to do. Balak responds in verse 11, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. Right. So it's not that he, that he doesn't curse him. Balaam actually said very positive things about Israel and Israel's future, okay? Oops. Plan backfiring. Look at verse 13. Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you'll only see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them, and curse them for me from there. So, attempt number two, maybe the view just wasn't what it needed to be. We'll go to another spot on the hill, and maybe this view will kind of be the right combination of things to give us the curse that we want on these people. So, they go to this new place, seven more altars, more animal sacrifices. Balaam goes. Balaam goes away from Balak and does whatever he does to speak to the gods. Historians say maybe he cuts an animal open and looks at the animal's intestines. Maybe he's mixing stuff. Whatever he does, he does. He gets another message, comes back to Balak. Verse 18, he says, we're in chapter 23, verse 18, Arise, O Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. 
meaning change his mind, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. So Balaam is explaining to Balak, this God isn't like other gods. This whole let's change the location and see what happens thing works when you are working with gods who change their mind. But this God doesn't change his mind. So just because you move to a different spot on the hill and did another voodoo ritual doesn't mean he's all of a sudden going to say, oh, okay, I guess I don't love them and you can curse them. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. More bad news uh, for Balak. Look at verse 22. Balaam continues, God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, what, has, what God has done. Behold, and here's, here's the, I mean, if Balak wasn't terrified by the horns of the ox phrase, right? This last one's really going to do it. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Bad news. So Balaam's, Balaam's message is, they belong to God. They belong to God. Balak's response, verse 25, he says, this is like a knee-jerk exclamation, don't curse them at all or bless them at all. It's like just, it's like when uh, a parent, or it's like when, when kids are being crazy in your house, in your classroom, and you try to like talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, and it doesn't work, and eventually you just like, you just flip it. Like, everybody shut up! Like, everybody now. That's kind of Balak's response, like, we tried new things. Listen, stop doing anything. Don't try to hurt them. Don't try to help them. Stop. Whatever you're doing isn't working. Just stop it. Okay? But then, more evidence that Balak is losing his mind. Look at verse 27. Balak said to Balaam, Please come. I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it'll be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. And at this point, it's like, what is wrong with you, dude? Like, you don't, you just aren't getting this. You want to try again? I mean, Balaam isn't the uh, brightest bulb in the box, but even Balaam, we will see, is kind of like, listen, like, really? Like, I mean, I'm happy for you to pay me for this third try or whatever, but you're not going to get a different result. So, seven more altars, more animal sacrifices, and then this is great. So we're in chapter 24 now. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to seek omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. In other words, they would do seven altars, animal sacrifices, and then Balaam would leave Balak and go do whatever he does to talk to God. Well, this time he doesn't even bother doing that, right? It's, it's like he's saying, like, forget it. I know what he's going to say. Let's just skip this third step. Um, he turns toward the wilderness. Verse 2 says, He lifted up his eyes, saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And then the Spirit of God gives Balaam another message. Balaam delivers this message to Balak. It's very similar to the first two. God is with them. God's not going to give them up. He's not going to curse them. Even talks of Israel's future a little bit, right? The lion devouring its prey. Isn't talking about Moab. This is the irony of this whole passage. God had said what about Moab? They can't touch Moab. 
Israel is not allowed to attack Moab, right? Which just makes the whole thing funnier, right? Because Balak's freaking out about being attacked, and we know, because we have the whole of the Old Testament, they're not allowed to attack Moab. Verse 10 of chapter 24, Balak's anger after this third message burned against Balaam, he struck his hand together. Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, meaning pay you. I said I would pay you, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. So, Balak's fear-fueled plan has failed sends Balaam away in anger without a paycheck, which is a little bit strange. You would think that a magician voodoo person is not the kind of person you want to get on the bad side of, but either Balak at this point is convinced that Balaam isn't really effective at cursing people, so he's not worried about him coming back and cursing him, or he's just too blinded by his rage to even be thinking about which I think is probably more the case. Balak says, the Lord has held you back from this. You understand he probably meant that, right? So these dudes, when we say they're not believers, it's different from what we think of today, right? So they're okay with the God of Israel being a God and having some power. He's just one among many for them, right? So the fact that God has refused to curse these people, like they take it as it is, okay. So he sends Balaam away in fury. Balaam responds before he goes by saying to Balak the same thing he has said five times in these chapters so far. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 24. Balaam, this is the sixth, this is the sixth time Balaam says this. Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me saying, though Balak were, this is what Balaam had said, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Balaam is constrained to say only what God lets him say, which is, Israel belongs to God. Over and over, Israel belongs to God. Attempt number one, nope. They belong to God. Attempt number two, Balak's a little angrier, new location, don't matter, they belong to God. Attempt number three, don't matter, they belong to God. This is over and over and over what's happening, and Balak has good reason to be afraid, right? The enemy's camped right here. There's nothing his military team can come up with to fight them. Apparently, they cannot possibly be cursed. Apparently, their God knows what he's doing and is using phrases like the horns of an oxen and a lion drinking the blood of its prey, right? I'd be afraid too. Absolute, absolute insecurity, okay? So, now we shift. Balak is the picture of living with fear, okay? He's not secure. He doesn't have the security that I said at the beginning we need in order to live the life we need to live. So now, we shift our focus from him to Israel. And as we think of Israel, who's not mentioned, I mean, they're mentioned in, this, in, in these chapters, but no Israelites are characters in these chapters. But as we think of them, we go back to this key exegetical question, which is, why would Balaam, this money-obsessed, greedy, internationally renowned, diviner, voodoo magician guy, why would he 
if he's just looking out for his own self-interest, be so dead set on doing what God says. He's not loyal to the God of Israel. He could have just lied, right? He, he could have gone off to talk to God. Even if God said, I can't curse him, he could have gone to Balak and said, yep, I cursed him. Give me the money. See you later, right? And we know he's a greedy guy because scripture tells us that elsewhere. So why in this one instance is he all of a sudden so obsessed with doing exactly what God says? The answer is back at the beginning of chapter 22. So go back there with me. God ensures Israel's security. So the first time, as, as we said earlier, the first time Balak sent messengers to Balaam, Balaam goes and asks God about it. God says, don't go. Balaam says to Balak, to Balak's messengers, can't go. Balak says, here's a little more money. Go ask God again. Balaam goes and asks God again. God says, okay, you can go. And then right when Balaam hits the road, God is angry that he went. And it's like, wait, God told him he could go, and now he's angry, and now he's angry that he went. What's up with that? Well, what's going on is God knows he's going to use Balaam, right, to preserve Israel, but he needs Balaam to reach that point that we know he reaches in which he will listen to exactly what he says. So we're going to read 22 verses 22 through 35. Try to read this as a whole chunk without interrupting, because... Uh, this is weird. This is, this is weird. This is, the, this is like the one thing you remember about the Balaam Balak story. Okay, so Numbers 22, 22 through 35. Just read through it. The passage speaks for itself. No pun intended. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against Balaam. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey again saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall, pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do that to you? And Balaam said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground, and the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, 
I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Now, so what's interesting, I mean, there's a lot interesting about, about this, right? The key thing, though, is God told him to go, and then God's instantly angry when he goes. God stops him, right? The angel of the Lord stops him and says, you are going away contrary to me, right? Like, I don't like that you're going. Balaam says, okay, I'll listen. And then the angel of the Lord we would assume the next thing he says is, yeah, so turn around and go back. Because he just said, you're going away, I don't want you to go. So turn around and go back. But he doesn't. He says, it's all good now. You can go, right? After saying, I don't like the way you're going, God says, now you can go, right? The point being, now that you've had this experience, this crazy, weird, donkey-talking experience, right? Which is weird even, even in all of our Bible stories, this is weird, right? The idea is, I would argue, Balaam, who is out for his own interests, needs to reach Israel and needs to be committed to saying only what God says. Now, how do you get a dude like Balaam to be like that? Well, you make him go through something like this, right? So Balaam go, goes through this donkey talking experience. It's weird. He's not even, it's like he's not even surprised. Like, he beats him, the donkey's like, what are you doing? And Balaam's like, what do you mean, what am I doing? Uh, like, it's normal to talk to your donkey, right? But Balaam reaches the end of it, and it's as if he's like, okay, my donkey just talked to me. I just saw an angel carrying a flaming sword. I will do whatever you say. I promise I will do whatever you say. And then he sticks to it, right? He, he tells Balak six times, listen, I have to do what this guy says, because he made my donkey talk on the way here. Right? Like, I've got to. I've got to, got to, got to do this. So, if Balak or Balaam really had been in their right minds, they would have, should have said what? They should have said, man, this God's not like all the other gods we've worked with. He loves his people in a way that's different from the way that we're used to God's loving people. In fact, this is Israel's down in the valley, right? And you would think, so imagine Balaam is left, Balak is afraid, but you'd think at least Balak would be thinking, man, for this God to love his people so much, they must be something really special. Like, they must obey him all the time. He's so blindlessly committed to preserving them and keeping them safe. Like, they must do all the sacrifices. They must never complain. They must be the best people ever, right? And we are sitting here, and the Israelite reading these chapters is sitting there thinking, hmm, what was going on? What was going on in the Israelite camp as all of these things were going on? So Bal Balak and Balaam are up on a hill, right, looking down at the valley and all the Israelites camped, and they're trying to figure out a way to curse them. God will not let them. Meanwhile, down in the camp, the Israelites at literally the same exact time are whining about how they were better off in Egypt, right? So as these people are trying to curse them and God says no, 
He's being a good father. They are secure in relationship with him. There's nothing people can do outside of his will. And the Israelites are trying to figure out a way to get away from God as it's happening, right? This is the point. This is the point. The you belong to God aspect of Israel's identity means that no matter what they do, no matter what they do, they're secure. They are secure. Now, it doesn't mean they can do whatever they want, right? God will judge them. They belong to him like a child belongs to a parent. I discipline my child because that's my kid, right? I'm responsible for that, but it's my judgment. No one else gets to come along and discipline my children because it's my judgment that the kid gets because the kid gets my love too, Okay, that's the idea. So it's not a license to do whatever they want, but it is absolute assurance that they belong to him and nothing can happen to ch- nothing can happen that will change that. Okay? And that's the kind of thing you need to flourish. Okay? Is fear a motivator? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I taught ninth graders like it's it's a futile it's a it's a futile pursuit if fear doesn't work of course fear works right be afraid of me so that you obey me right it's the whole idea kids the same way but but it's not the best it's not the best motivator okay and as a teacher or parent you establish that i'm the boss i'm the authority relationship but you also establish the I love you more than you can possibly imagine relationship because you need that too. They need to feel safe. Kids need to know they're not going to be tossed out if they do something wrong, right? As followers of God, that's the security that we have. Doesn't mean God won't judge us, discipline us, right? But it means that while people, and you can, you can draw the connection in a multitude of ways, right? Satan accuses us. Satan could say, God, Joel's preaching now and he looks pretty good, but he'll probably sin at least 10 times this week, right? And the point is, God can respond by saying, you're wrong. It's 47 times that he's going to sin. And it doesn't matter because he belongs to me. He's mine, right? It doesn't matter. So Balak says, God, listen, they don't even want to be, they don't even want to be your people right now. They want to go back to Egypt. And God could say, you don't even know the half of it, right? You don't even know the half of it. But that's not the point. The point is they're mine, period. That's the way it works, okay? That's the relationship we have with God. That is what enables us to flourish as people. Okay. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate We appreciate the relationship we have with you. So difficult not to view our relationship with you, all of our relationships, as conditional. So hard not to try to earn your favor. Help us to remember that we belong to you. If we have placed our faith in Christ, we belong to you. It's who we are. We are in Christ. Nothing can happen that would change that. Help us to... Help us to use that not as a license to do bad things, but as freedom to serve. Help us to use that freedom um, that we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of adoption. Help us to use that to serve. Help us to be motivated to do what's right, to tell other people that they can have this kind of absolutely secure relationship 
uh, with the God who loves them. Be with us as we contemplate what that might mean for each of us in our, in our daily walks. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.